Welcome friends, people for peace, pods of consciousness, planetary citizens, wherever you happen to be today, listening to Glocal News in Social Artistry. I'm your host, Dick Dalton, and each week we get to talk to someone else that's building a more humane world from the inside out. And today, my guest is Gene Robertson from Columbia, Professor Emeritus at Mizzou. Uh, hello, Gene. Hi, Dick. How are you doing? Doing all right. How would you introduce yourself these days? Well, I'm a consummate activist and a caring human being. In my lifetime, I was instrumental in getting the legislative caucus put together in a past life when I was at the university. Uh-huh. I enjoyed hearing your conversation with Ruben Furlow the other day. And if there was ever a conversation I would love to have jumped in on, it was <laughs> that one. It was an enjoyable, enriching experience. What I'd like to do is start off by giving you a OG retired professor's perspective in terms of the 2015 experience that we had indeed at the university all right i listened to what uh, ruben said and i concurred with everything he said but i said boy i saw it from a totally not a totally different pers perspective but from a different perspective okay and mine had to do with where I was, his had to do with where he was. And I thought it would be of interest to people to consider both of those pers perspectives. His was a young student and mine was an old professor. I'd, I'd like to start by saying, I started out in my involvement with the students over there at the university after the uh, Michael Brown experience in Ferguson. Right. At that time, I, I'm 85 now, so I was 80 then. And uh, I have always been involved in social issues. And so I just felt a strong need to go over to Ferguson when I saw all hell breaking loose in Ferguson. Uh -huh. And I had been involved pretty intimately with the Missourian as a columnist and as a member of the Reader's Board. And so I thought immediately that I could get a ride with one of the reporters who was going over to Ferguson. Oh, okay. But to my dismay, I found out that there were no reporters who were going over there. And so- I can feel your dismay. I was kind of frustrated because <laughs> I, my, my heart wanted to be there, but my legs wouldn't allow me to because I figured something would come up and I'd have to run uh -oh. and there would be no way that I could do anything but crawl. So this is how life is. I get a phone call that said, no, first I try over at the university. I said, you know, this is the number one journalism school in the country from what I hear from the University of Missouri. Right. I know somebody's going to go over to Ferguson to write a story or do something. Nobody was going over there hmm. except one a photographer who had signed on 
as a stringer for the uh, New York Times. They had paid him to go over there and he had already gone and taken his pictures. So he wasn't going back. So I was really feeling some anxiety, mm -hmm. but I get a phone call from New York City and a guy calls and says, his name was Adam uh, Farkas. He said, uh, Dr. Robinson, I've heard a lot about you and I wanted to come and uh, put you in a documentary that I'm doing uh, relative to uh, civil rights uh, heroes and stuff. And uh, I said, you wanna come here? And he said, yeah. I'll come and, and uh, I'll uh, photograph you and, and, uh, and do some documentary stuff with you. And I said, only if you agree to do me a favor. Yeah. And he said, what was that? And I said, I want to go to Ferguson. And if you agree to drive me to Ferguson, uh, I'll agree to, to uh, uh, be interviewed for your documentary. And so he came. We went to Ferguson and met all the people uh, who were involved in it. And I'm a big book bug. What I did was I, uh, we were going by the library in Ferguson and I saw a sign that said library sale. And I said, hey man, let's stop. I wanna see what they have in the library. <laughs> and he said, okay. So we went into the library and when I opened the door, all of the activists that I knew around the St. Louis, East St. Louis area were all there. They said, hey, Jenny, Doc, where, where, where you been? You know, you know I've been in, in Columbia, you know, but I, I'm, I'm here now. And they said, we're glad to see you and everything. And, and, and Adam said, Dr. Robinson, how did you know that they were going to be in the library? I said, I didn't know. All I did was saw that sign that said book sale. And uh, I'm, I'm an avid book buyer. And I wanted to see what happened. It was just luck that they were all there. We had a good exchange uh, in Ferguson. And then we went and bought barbecue and came on back to Columbia. And then we began our uh, interview with, uh, with Adam and, and myself. Mm -hmm. So, so um, I felt pretty good about having gone there. The next day, the barbecue place burned down. Oh. But um, we had had our barbecue. When we went down to Ferguson, it was warm enough for us to not be wearing any coats or anything when the students did their protest at the university, it was in the snow, it, so it, mm. some time had passed. Right. But I said, well, this will be my opportunity to get to meet some of the faculty members at the university, because I had been retired, I think I retired around in the 90s, okay. and I hadn't had a lot of contact with the, the uh, faculty or the student body. So I go over to the university and they're meeting in front of Jesse Hall. And I look and I see a lot of young people and everything. And I say, well, who are the new faculty? And they said, you are the new faculty. And I said, well, what about the black faculty? All these black faculty members they had. They said, doc, you're the only one. Oh, wow. So I, I sent you the picture. 
that time we met and we took the pictures and I with the old guy with the gray under the duct tape that yeah. said, I can't breathe. Right. So then I was frustrated and puzzled and went back to the university at um, a black studies meeting. And I said, well, I didn't meet them with the kids. They ought to be at the black studies meeting. Went to the black studies meeting. The room was packed, filled with people. Mm -hmm. I looked around and I was the only black person in the audience other than the participants on the dais who, uh, who were putting on the uh, presentation. Wow. And I raised the question then, what in the world is happening here? I'm the only black faculty member here and um, the room is filled with white people and it's a black studies issue that we're dealing with. <laughs> so again, I was quite frustrated at that. And so that was the level of anxiety I was beginning to have about all of these new faculty members, because when I was there, I was the second black faculty member hired at the university. When I was there, uh, we had about 15, but then they were bragging about having close to 100 now. And I'm saying, well, where are they? Yeah. You know, why aren't they? supporting these black students why aren't they in these issues that uh, relate to black life and uh, social political or anything mm -hmm. and so i had a, a bit of frustration about that but then the person who took the picture was a young man by the name of jonathan butler okay and he was the son of a executive for the railroad department in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. And his, his mother was a, a minister in Omaha. Uh -huh. So the Jonathan had a real expensive camera and took all the pictures. And as you could see, most of the people there were females. Right. And then there was me and a guy named Justice, Max Justice. And, uh, and Reuben, and Reuben was the tall guy standing behind me. Oh, wow. And a lot of the, Reuben told you the story of how he became involved with the, the ladies uh -huh. through the uh, LGP, the LGT group. And then it was Reuben, though the LGT uh, uh, young ladies and all the other young ladies that were attracted to Ruben. <laughs> so that made up the gist, the, the group at that uh, outing there uh, and, and that uh, protest uh, meeting there. So I started uh, talking to the kids and one of the things I, I did when I was on campus was always if we were involved in any kind of social protest or anything like that, I know kids can be very dramatic and idealistic about things. I would always tell them, keep your eyes on the prize. And the prize is what your parents sent you here to school for. You must graduate. You must do your work and don't get, don't get caught up in this protest or this issue so much that you feel like you need to quit school 
or let your, your uh, studies go. Uh-huh. So that was what I felt was the responsibility of any faculty member. You can help them think through things regarding the issue, but also you had a responsibility to give them what the university could provide for them in terms of an education, because that's what they came there for. Right. So as a result of that, I began meeting with Ruben, Jonathan, and other members of that group in my office, which was the lobby of the Columbia Library, because I could park my car there and, you know, not have to walk too far. And we met in terms of dealing with the issues that they were concerned about. And uh, they had to do with systemic racism and they had to do with a lack of contact and support uh, from black faculty members. And so in that interaction, I learned that they were getting ready to have this uh, homecoming. And that's when they came out and I had the interaction with uh, uh, the president, uh, Wolf. Uh And as a result of that, Jonathan, who, remember, Jonathan is the other male figure who wasn't getting the attention that Reuben was getting, Uh all of a sudden committed himself to not eating anymore until Wolf was out of office. And the girls said, okay, we're behind you. And then one of the girls' boyfriend, who was the football player, he said, uh, uh, I'm behind you. And then the next thing you know, his other football players who were, who were Black said, we're behind you. Then the white football players said, we're behind you. Right. And all of a sudden, they, they were asking Coach uh, Pinkle, what's he going to do? And he didn't have a team, so he'd be eyeing his team. So as a result of that, they were about to not have that uh, game in Kansas City that they wanted the football game. Mm -hmm. And the time was flying, and they were demanding that uh, something happen. And then all of a sudden, the New York Times, the L.A. Times, Uh, all of the newspapers came to Missouri to find out what was going on. Well, these were young kids and uh, they were overwhelmed by cameras in their faces and questions being asked that they had no idea, you know, uh, about except uh, there's racism on campus and we're being discriminated against. You know, you, you give the standard Right. Uh, kind of uh, reactions to that kind of situation. Jonathan hadn't been talking uh, to uh, anybody about fasting and all that kind of stuff, but he had committed himself and now everybody was focused on, on him and his not eating and getting rid of the president. And as a result of it, they started weighing what the consequences were. And I'm talking about the university as well as the students. The students were just overwhelmed. A faculty member tried to push back and protect the students because they were all over them with those cameras and 
questions and they didn't know how to answer. And uh, so she then began to get her punishment for protect the kids. And then all of a sudden time is running out and something has to be done because the game is about to be played oh. if you're going to play it. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, a president was removed to get the football game back on schedule. The and power, uh, the power of the that, purse. Yeah, that's right. Now, and that poor guy was a system president. He, he wasn't interacting with students on a constant basis. He was dealing with professionals at the system level. Mm -hmm. And uh, when that kind of situation came in, uh, he wasn't prepared for it. He uh, certainly didn't handle it well, but he certainly wasn't to blame for all the things that the kids thought the university was to blame for. Right. And so, so you got that kind of interaction. So then I go into to another experience where I try to catch Jonathan and I try to catch um, Ruben. And I'm, I'm saying, hold off, get yourselves together, organize and get with some faculty members and organize so that you know what you're going to ask for because they're demanding. They want to know what you want. Right. And again, because they're young students and Ruben really was the graduate student in the group. They didn't know what to ask for. So they, as Ruben said, they asked for what the first group asked for. When uh, Mike Middleton's folks were around and what they wanted was faculty members because they didn't have any. My guest today is uh, Dr. Jean Robertson or Jean Robertson, uh, an OG professor emeritus, retired University of Missouri, but more importantly, uh, an activist and a concerned citizen for the needs of people that, that are definitely underserved in our community and our world. Arvis Strickland came in 1969. Okay. I came in 70. Mm -hmm. So prior to that, Yale, you want black faculty members. But in 2015, you got a hundred of them around there and they're not showing up to your meetings. They're not interacting with you. And so I suggested contact other universities that are having the same problem and see what they're asking for. But before that they could do that, they had those mics in their face. And so they ended up saying, we want what the other group wanted, you know, initially. Right. So that was then my perspective of it. And once they were able to uh, get the, the football game back on, then they started having to fill the president's position and other positions on campus. Mm -hmm. But they were filling them with the very same folks who weren't addressing the students' needs uh, initially. And that's why, you know, you hear Ruben saying <laughs> nothing changed. Right. You know, after they got the football game and, and nothing could change because they didn't know what to ask for. They had no guidance from, frankly, people who used to be like me, 
who would try to work with them and and uh and try to guide them right so I, i'll stop there but that's how those unintended consequences can cause great things to happen or insignificant kinds of things to happen i'm gonna stop there and let you raise some questions okay this whole issue of change systemic change is something that is not happening it has never happened but let me say when i came there when i arrived they were setting up the highway patrol state highway patrol was setting up the seats and the almost like velvet rope to contain the the protest ah. that they were having regarding the the uh, Vietnam War. Oh, okay. The the protest was controlled and supported by the university. But one of the sociology faculty members, Daryl Hobbs, knew that his sociology students weren't going to be in class that day. So he canceled the class and they punished him. He was chairman of the department. They punished him by uh, taking his chairmanship from him. Wow. Now, Daryl had been an athlete and faculty member from Iowa State, I think. And then he later went on to develop what was called OCEDA. Hmm. I don't know that. OCEDA is the uh, entity on campus that does all the research on census. Oh, okay. And it's quite a strong dynamic area uh, department. It was created because they had kicked Hobbes out of sociology and he uh, started that program. It was in the same building in Clark Hall that uh, our offices were. Oh, okay. And so he's Mm-hmm. So he started in a little room, but it became a, a very instrumental entity in the state in terms of research on uh, census data, and it and it's thriving today. Wonderful. What exactly was your area? Okay, I'm I'm an urban planner, and I got my PhD and and taught at the University of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and did some graduate teaching at the. Uh, University of Wisconsin. And I came here after they came after me for about three, well, about three years. They tried to get me to come uh, because the a group called Freedom Incorporated and in Kansas City, which is the Black political organization, demanded that they get another faculty member, another Black faculty member, or they were going to uh, try to block the funding of the university. So they were out looking for a black faculty member. <laughs> and uh, with me being a planner and they were interested in getting Branson developed, I then decided that I would come to work on Branson for three years. Oh. And, and uh, as a result of that, well, I'll just say it quickly. We developed Branson like we wanted it. And that was to be a retirement area for people from Iowa and Chicago to come and retire. All right. Well, Andy Williams came and he saw it and he said, I like this place. I'm going to open a supper club. And he opened that supper club. And then all of Nashville and Springfield came and changed the whole life. Again, another unintended uh, circumstance. Uh, They changed the whole thing. 
So I was responsible for that and St. Louis as an area because I did the planning and I was extension program leader, oh. you know, and this is a, a land grant college, right? Like Lincoln. So yeah. guys like Randy Halsey yeah, and Dr. Green uh-huh. and Tony Holland. Tony, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and all of us, you know, we would go to Boot Hill, to Kansas City, right. and to St. Louis. I did a lot of joint work with Lincoln. And so now going back to this uh, discrimination and, and racism thing, when I arrived because I was doing academic work and extension work, I sent out a letter saying to all the extension people, that, so that's all over the state saying, please inform me as to what you're doing with underserved communities, <laughs> you know, Blacks and, and people of color, Indigenous people and poor whites and all this. And they say, they, they, they would get back to my name. Who in the hell is this guy? You know, having the audacity to, to you know, want, want to know what I do in my area. Mm-hmm. But we soon got to know each other and respect each other professionally. Mm-hmm. And they knew what I was about. And they knew it had to do with the best interests of the, the uh people being served that they were serving and also with the mission of the university. Mm-hmm. But see, I had come from a, a organizing background in Milwaukee and Chicago and everything. And so oh. my orientation, I had worked with Saul Alinsky and, and uh, the IF and uh, Mil- a whole lot of stuff in Milwaukee. Right. So my orientation has always been toward community development and community organization. Mm-hmm. And so I came as a result of that, but I had just received a PhD in planning and, and it was a dual PhD, one in planning and one in curriculum and instruction. And so I wanted to do planning and that's how I got here. But I thought I would only be here three years and I ended up spending the rest of my life here. <laughs> Did you uh, have a contact, I suppose, with uh, Mary Lennox when she came on board in the 70s? Oh, yeah. With Mary Lennox when she was working. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, before Mary Lennox with KOPN. Oh. (laughs) Getting KOPN started and then uh, work with Wina Fay and uh, Straight Talk was, you know, we started that a long time ago. And with Walter Anderson, who was a sugar sugar man uh, from Lincoln, a Lincoln graduate, and um, also did a lot of work with uh, the farmers market here, and and uh, and because Columbia was Columbia, St. Louis, Kansas, and, and uh, Kansas City were my areas, and so with Paul Lutz and I, we we went down to Kansas City learned how they were doing the markets in Kansas City, the farmers markets, the farmers market uh, down there, because, you, you know, that's it controlled. It was controlled by the mafia in Kansas City. Oh, uh, and so but we went down there, learned how they did it and brought it back here. And uh, through a guy not, nobody thinks about anymore. But Paul Luce was uh, the uh, community development extension worker, an excellent person. 
who worked with me on getting the uh, farmer's market started because I was the community development program leader. Most of the community development programs, you know, I worked on the Boneville art programs, but we worked on any, uh, just about every program you could think of and work with Bryce Ratchford, who was the president on getting uh, the substitute for the banks. Credit union. Credit unions. Yeah, credit unions. <laughs> and co-ops. Uh-huh. So we did a lot of that stuff. So I came here out of that tradition. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, and that's been a part of my life. And that's what I continue to do. But I thought that when we got additional Black faculty members here, that they would continue to do that, you know, that they would continue to support the Black students and right. black, black efforts in the community. I have no evidence now that now people like Clarence Schwein, Mary Lennox, all of us, uh, we worked in the community mm-hmm. and Mary Lennox was dean of the library school as well as working on, on, on KOPN. Everybody worked in the community as well as on campus. And when I get back here, I try to find the seeds or the, the flowers that have grown from those seeds on campus. And I am unable to find them. No. The best I could do was people like Ruben, uh-huh. who was a graduate student and a faculty member. Mm-hmm. And those folks out of that area in education. Yeah. who called themselves the critical thinkers uh-huh. in, in that area. Those were the most dynamic people. My guest today is uh, Dr. Jean Robertson, or Jean Robertson, uh, an OG professor emeritus, retired University of Missouri, but more importantly, uh, an activist and a concerned citizen for the needs of people that that are definitely underserved in our community and our world. Now, another thing I'll say to you is I helped start the South Africa program oh, uh, yeah. with the University of Missouri Wonderful. as a result of my protesting the lack of divestment by the university. Okay. And the person who went over to South Africa with me was Bob Woods, the former dean of the School of Education, oh, mm-hmm. and the vice president of the university. Well, that's a very successful continuing program. We celebrated, uh, Ron Turner, who was vice president at that time, reminded me when we had the celebration of, the, I guess, around 30 or 40 years. I forget how many number, yeah. years it was. Uh-huh. And Ron said, Jane, remember we started this with $50,000 that Bryce Ratchford was able to finagle from Kellogg because Kellogg and Bryce were friends based upon Bryce doing the uh, co-ops, which were related to Kellogg's interests. And so Bryce was able to get the $50,000. They were able to talk me into going over to South Africa with them. And we were able to generate the program. Now, when we got over there, let me say to you, the guy, this was during apartheid. Uh-huh. So I had to be dubbed a honorary white person to stay in the hotel. But as a result of that seed, and see, when we got over there, they 
said this was a school that was controlled pretty much by the ANC, uh, Mandela's group. Yes. Uh -huh. And when we got over there, they said, uh, why should we help you? Who, who told you to come over here? And I thought that they had set it up for us to come there and do that. Uh -huh. and, uh, and I find out, no, we were going on our own. And Ron Turner and Bob Woods, they both pushed me out there to, to speak, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and I said, we wanted to start something. And fortunately, I had once been a visiting professor at Cornell. And one of my students at Cornell was on the faculty of the University of the Western Cape. Oh. And he told them to be quiet and listen to me. Wonderful. Because he knew me, you know, as a good person. Again, we're talking about these unintended consequences. I hear you. Yeah. Um, and one of the other faculty members had been at Wisconsin when I was at Wisconsin. Oh, my. And so uh, through them, we were able to get the program started. And as a result, it's almost a, a billion-dollar program if you consider all of the European colleges and universities who have piggybacked on that with the African universities. Mm -hmm. And so they have an extensive program as a result of that $50,000 that Bryce Ratchford brought in and me and Bob Woods and Ron Turner. There have been extensive exchanges and all of the, a lot of the guys that I met initially when we were negotiating about 30 years ago had become presidents of universities and stuff over there. And then they came back and one day someone said to me, Gene, there's some guys over here from South Africa and all they're talking about is you. Where were you? And I said, they didn't invite me. The University of Missouri did not invite me to their coming. But all those guys could remember was when Gene came and we did this and we did that and they talked about it. And the next time when they did a 40 year or whatever, 35 year celebration, they included me. But by that time, those guys who I initially had met, who then became presidents, had retired. Oh. And so the, the <laughs> folks that I, I was interacting with, they didn't know. You know, they, they were like go. Ruben and those guys. Interesting. And so they didn't know me because uh, a lot of times they didn't know how it started. All they know is right. that they were now president of these universities and they had a relationship with the University of Missouri. Yeah. So luckily me and Ron, Ron Turner, uh, were still alive and, and uh, we, could, we could bask in you know, what that seed that we had planted that had grown so well. Wonderful. Back in Columbia, do you remember a, a place called the Open Door? Oh, yeah. And is that when you bumped into Ray Hayes? See, I think I called him the Reverend Hayes. You know? Oh, I know, okay. I didn't know uh, anybody called him Ray. Yeah, we were in school together at Mizzou. Go ahead. Uh, I was a freshman and he was, and Celeste were probably, oh, maybe juniors or so. And we were all members of the Wesley Foundation there at the Methodist Church. Okay. And a guy named Bob Younce was the uh, Wesley Foundation director. 
so anyway, that's my connection to hey, Reverend hey, Hayes. Ray, Raymond Hayes. Right. Reverend Raymond Hayes, <laughs> as I call him, uh, has been one of the most dynamic people in the church in, in Columbia throughout his life. Mm -hmm. Whenever we have had activities that required space and support, we got it from St. Luke before uh, mm -hmm. anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And uh, that has always been a center, a uh, religious center place of, of social interaction uh, in, in Columbia. And see, I, you remember now, I told you I was involved with Paul Lutz and the local folks in Columbia. Uh -huh. Well, I became interested in the folks from Cemetery Hill, the black people who lived in Cemetery Hill. Are you familiar with Cemetery Hill? Well, I lived on South Garth. That's where I grew up. Uh, okay, and, and Cemetery Hill was up there where- Lucky's is-, is, is Yeah, it was Lucky's, yeah. yeah. And th there were people, there was a black community that was there and it was near the cemetery and it was called Cemetery Hill. And I walked by their homes to go downtown Okay. Because it was right next to Grant School where I went to elementary school. And I, I was still eating lunch with the Nunleys and the Gordons and all of those families that uh, lived there. Hmm. And I went to St. Luke because most of the people at St. Luke came from Cemetery Hill. Oh, okay. And uh -huh. so that's been my religious family. And more than that, my my kinship here in Columbia in the black community, it has grown from my interaction with the people from uh, Cemetery Hill and the people from St. Luke Church. Hmm. And that's why I'll meet us. We did the uh, poor people's uh, bre uh, breakfast. We did that from there. The Concerned Men of Columbia, which is another organization. We used to do monthly uh, uh, lectures there. And uh, we've had all kinds of pro programs that came from there and with folks who had, attend uh, who had attended the church and were from Cemetery Hill. Yeah, that's, that's my centerpiece. Wow. But when you said Ray Hayes, I said, <laughs> who, who, who was that? <laughs> when I would walk by those what uh, we called shanties. Yes. They, they were really just uh, boards, terrible living conditions. Uh, oh, yeah. Outdoor uh, barrels to for heat. I mean, it was just, can't imagine what it would be. No, no plumbing whatsoever. Yeah, yeah. And it was, here I was two blocks away in my middle-class brick home with with no clue as to how it was for that. But some of the women from Cemetery Hill and, and across past Douglas would come over and they helped raise me at my house. They were the maids or the, we didn't call them nannies, but you know, they taught me to play the piano a little bit or they cut my hair or they did this or that, cooking and, and different things. It was a strange time. Yes, but see, the other interesting thing was I heard Reuben come up with a term that I said, that's, that is it. He talked about 
microaggressions. Yeah. Now, and that's what, see, here's the thing. You can have what you were experiencing during that those times there and what we experience all over the world because it's a difference in degree based upon geography uh -huh. uh, but uh, everybody has the disease of of uh, thinking they're better than somebody else or right. or somebody is less than them uh, so it happens everywhere but structurally uh, a lot of times people think of systemic as a structure it isn't a structure what you were experiencing was the structure when you were living in one place and somebody else was living somewhere else. Mm -hmm. When I was over in South Africa, they had me speak to one of the universities and, and one of the schools. And they asked me what I thought of uh, Cape Town. And I said, it has too many fences. Yeah. Because most of the houses were fenced in. Yeah. And too few bridges. Ah, yeah. You know, and they quoted me on, you know, in terms of that. But see, here, here's the thing. When you remove yourself from the structure and you're saying, we're no longer like that because Raymond Hayes and somebody else and you live next door to each other now. Yeah, right. Well, the structure has broken down, maybe to an extent. A, a visible extent, mm -hmm. but the system is still there because the habit of microaggressions right. continues to occur even when you don't want it to. Then you you have the best heart, uh, and we and see we have that within the black community. Within the black community, I hear you. Those mm -hmm. folks who lived here who worked for the rich folks in Colombia thought they were better than the folks who worked for the middle-class folks in Colombia yeah. and those folks who worked for just the working class. Yeah. And so within that group, they behaved in a similar kind of microaggressiveness. Mm -hmm. If you went into the wrong church, they let you know that you were in the wrong church, oh whether it was the black church, and, and black people or the white church and white people. And a lot of times people keep thinking, well, we broke down the structure, yeah, to an extent, but still the system is there because the system evolved into microaggressions. Mm -hmm. You can drink out of the same fountain, mm -hmm. but you kind of hold on to your purse when you see a black person coming toward you mm -hmm. and that person knows that you're doing that and yeah. you know that you're doing it. And that's what Ruben is talking about with the microaggressions. Yeah. I am married to a Hispanic uh -huh. and uh, we uh, had a situation over at the university where she had made a decision and she tried to communicate it to a person and the person did their work that they were assigned to do, but they failed to give her what that person would have given you, a good explanation of what she was doing because that person did not have a command of Spanish uh -huh. and saw no need to put forth extra effort 
but they responded to what she gave them. Hmm. And uh, they were doing their job. Uh, if you ask them what he did, uh, what they did, they said, well, I told her this. And that, that's what I would tell anybody else. I did this. And that's what I would do. It. No, she didn't understand it. Um, and you didn't feel compelled to make her understand it. Mm -hmm. That is a subtle microaggression. Right. There are so many things like that. I, I used to go into a place, and I'm not going to call it a name, but they would always call me Dr. Robinson. It was a nice place. <laughs> they wanted everybody to know that I was Dr. Robinson. I'm Gene. But Dr. Robinson would say, he's okay. Mm -hmm, right. He, he's got that, status, so he can be here. That's right. That's mm -hmm. right. Yeah. And that was like making me honorary white yeah, <laughs> in, in South Africa in the hotel. So that's what we're dealing with nowadays. You know, my I remember my son telling me, Dad, why are you so caught up in that stuff? The girl uh, I went to the prom with here in Columbia looked like Prince Grace or Queen Grace. Mm -hmm. And she drove the car. We don't have to worry about that kind of thing anymore. Mm -hmm. And yet, if me and my wife got into it because we were different socioeconomic uh, levels when we buried, if she lost, the, if she began to lose the, the argument, she'd quickly let me know that uh, you're still a blog boy. <laughs> and a blog boy is what at Howard they tell the girls at Howard to not be involved with the guys on, on the street in D.C. because they're block boys. How do we spell that? B-L-O-C-K. Block boys, okay. Uh, from, from the block. My guest today is uh, Dr. Gene Robertson, or Gene Robertson, uh, an OG professor emeritus, retired University of Missouri, but more importantly, uh, an activist and a concerned citizen for the needs of people that that are definitely underserved in our community and our world, and so you, so you, uh, so we all do it in one way or another. But if it's not in your face, a lot of times folks say, "Well, it's gone." Mm -hmm. Well, it's gone until that critical moment when uh, somebody has to use it, or somebody chooses not to give the effort that it takes to be fair with you mm -hmm. because you demand a little more effort than someone else mm -hmm. who doesn't uh, have to be slowly taught. I remember one time that some, uh, some students told me, some international stu students told me, Dr. Robinson, we like your lectures. And I said, why? They said, because you talk slow so we can understand. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Simple things like that. So, just simple things. But that was my natural way of talking. But they perceived it as that was giving them consideration. And I can remember having faculty members, you know, when I was in school, who didn't do that, and I didn't understand half of what they said. Right. So that term that Ruben used as microaggression is is one where you you you're moving from a structural segregation or discrimination 
toward an area where you're less structural, but there are still levels of microaggressions that are occurring all the time. And we have to guard ourselves against the process. We yeah. have to understand the process yeah. and recognize that we're doing that all the time and minimize the negative aspects of it and maximize the positive aspects of it. But I just want to say, I got such a enjoyment out of you and Ruben having that discussion because your background is, is counseling psychology. And I was a psychiatric social worker at one time in my life. Oh. And Ruben, you know, his background is psychology as yeah. well. So we have a, but we're all interested in the same thing. And, and, it, and Ruben pushed, you know, placed it, you know, right at, at where it should be, love. He sure did. That was a powerful That's ending, the, wasn't it? And, 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 and that, is, that is him, you know. Mine is more, I would say, resolution and constant preparation and, and vigilance and uh, strategizing, uh-huh. you know, based upon what we know. And a continuation of it, and that's what, that's why I'm, I have such a frustration with the university. We do not have a group of folks who took what we started here and continued it, a continuum. And everything now that the students encounter, it's like it's fresh and new, mm-hmm. but it isn't. It's been a part of the university from the time that they, in 1951, I remember reading in the the Tribune, where they said the curators met and they decided that no African-American could attend classes unless they weren't provided by Lincoln. Yeah, unless they weren't. Yeah. Uh That's right. Now, if you're African, you could. But if you're African-American, you couldn't. And uh, and that was a structural kind of thing. But uh, again, with the land grant mission and all that other stuff and affirmative action and civil rights, you're obligated in some way. And so they take down the structural fences, but they continue the microaggression because that's a part of the habit. Yes. When I arrived here, I was the only one with a PhD in planning. All right. Uh huh. And I taught all the planning courses after uh, one of our faculty members, whose name I can't remember, uh-huh. uh, quit teaching once I arrived he quit teaching them and I started teaching them have you heard of a guy by the name of Quentin Schink Quentin Schink I don't think so Quentin Schink was the dean of the school of social work here at some time and then he moved to Milwaukee and he was the dean of our school of social work oh uh uh-huh uh in Milwaukee and, uh, and it was just odd that I, I came, you know, I went to school of social work in, in yeah. Milwaukee, <laughs> you know, and I did, uh, I, there you had to, just like the Ruben was saying, in order for me to pay for my uh, attendance there, I had to get a, a grant and the grant was in psychiatric group work. Oh. And so I ended up having to get my master's in psychiatric group work mm-hmm. and community org because <laughs> community org was what I wanted because I had come out of Chicago yeah. and, that, and that, his, that history with Alinsky. Uh-huh. But in order to do it, I had, I had to do a double major. 
But Quentin Chink never expected to be going to the school that he he uh, had been a dean at. Right. And and what they did here was they didn't have a community development or com- community organization area and social work. Oh. They only had the they only had the uh, the individual social work. Mm-hmm. And what happened was they they gave that to an academic department, which Quentin was over, which was called community development. Mm-hmm. And that's how you got the community development side of it. But unlike, I just want to say this, unlike community uh, org, which I did in Chicago, this uh, community development was based upon not having a leader like Obama claimed to do, like I did do, and Alinsky did do. Uh, you don't have a leader. You create your leaders within the community. Yes. Uh-huh. And that's where you get the, you know, uh, the community development aspect of it. That our job is not to go in and become leaders, mm-hmm. but it's to create leaders in the community. So when you concerned men of Columbia uh, meet, it seems as though, just from the little I know of the group, that your leaders in a certain way in your respective areas, and I wonder how you see yourselves as uh, leaders in the community. Well, the Minority Men's Network, it's a network. And before, when Orville Strickland, remember I was telling you, we do the same thing within our community. Mm-hmm. Before, when Orville Strickland and Elliot Battle and them yeah. had an organization that was called the Guardians. Oh, okay. And the Guardians was one of those groups where you had to be la-di-da, a professional. Oh, to, to be in, in the organization. Then you had to have, you know, again, the subtle kinds of yeah. uh, aggressions were created. So you just did not become a member of the Guardians unless you had a title. Yes, I hear you. Mm-hmm. Okay, so there came a time when uh, uh, that was just wearing out. I, I told you I wasn't for that in, in any kind of way. Mm-hmm. And so then they started this network, which allowed anybody to be a member who wanted to be. All right. At any level you wanted it to, to, to uh, be at. And it was a service, uh, still a service organization, but uh, there were no requirements. You could be a janitor or you could be anything or president, you know. But the orientation was, has been, and uh, many of us have constantly fought this, was that you, you gave scholarships to um, worthy students. And it was pretty much a scholarship organization oh. to, for kids to go to college. Okay. But there came a time when... Uh, I, I said, I don't want to do anything unless you're helping those folks who need help. And those are not the top kids. 
those are the kids who need help. I hear you. Mm -hmm. And so as a result of that, some of us have gone, we go into our pockets to create situations where we help people. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know Chester McDonald. I did not. Or I mean, do know because he's still living. But I have a picture when we were the guardians and I have a picture of Chester giving a little boy a bicycle, a new bike on Christmas. And uh, I kind of cherish that picture because that says what I want to do. I want to help those who need help in terms of my priority. Well, it's great to have you on today, Gene Robertson. Your history is a valuable uh, storyline that we, we could lose if we don't keep telling it. So thank you so much for enlightening me and, and our audience today. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to, to react because uh, that meeting with uh, Ruben was such a good one. I just ate to get in on it <laughs> and to at least follow it up with another perspective. Now, mine is uh, what they call an OG perspective at uh, 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 now and uh, a retired uh, faculty member perspective. But it's uh, all of these, you put these various per- perspectives together and out of it, you you get something called uh, a truth. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted to add to that, that uh, a truth. Well, thank you, Gene. Dr. Gene Robertson, an OG professor emeritus, retired University of Missouri, but more importantly, uh, an activist and concerned citizen for the needs of people that that are definitely underserved in our community and our world. And friends, uh, remember, wherever you are, that is your world. Please leave your world cleaner, more peaceful and more loving than you found it. Because if it is to be, it is up to us. Take care. Talk to you soon.